Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast. This is regular host Aaron Percival, a.k.a. Corporal Hicks, and joining me, as always, is... Adam Zeller, a.k.a. Ridgetop. And this is episode 157, and I'm sorry, it's another Predator one, but it's not Prey. We're, we're taking a little Prey break, but we are still revisiting Predator because there's been a lot, maybe not a lot, but there's, there's been a significantly more amount of Predator releases this year than we used to. And one of those ones was a book called Predator, a memoir, a movie, and an obsession. So I would like to welcome to the show the author of said memoir, movie, and obsession, Mr. Ander Munson. Welcome to the AVP Galaxy podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller. (laughs) They're the kind we like. We like a bit of uh, brand loyalty here, and there's no more brand loyalty as well than to Predator with the amount of times that Ander has watched this film. uh, We'll talk about, no doubt, in this following episode, and if you read the book, you'll also find out in there. So, and before we talk Predator and your relationship, you know, with the film, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? You know, who is Ander and what does he do? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Ander Munson. Um, I'm a writer. I've got nine books. I write fiction, write poetry, write nonfiction, been spending a lot of time with nonfiction. I'm from Upper Peninsula in Michigan, which is a thing that I write about a bit in The Predator and Memoir, because that's an important part of like thinking about like where I was when I encountered Predator for the first time. Um, yeah, I teach at the University of Arizona. I teach creative writing. Big Predator fan, big alien fan, bit of a gamer, like to make things, really like making t-shirts, uh, like making VHS slipcovers, which you can't see. There's this limited edition VHS slipcover, which I should send you guys for, for Predator and Memoir. I made these like tactical chapsticks. I saw all this on your website. I like to make stuff. And that's kind of what brings me here today. I actually thought, you know, I probably do a better job of, of perhaps reading the blurb on the back of the book because we've just launched straight into this. This is not a novel. This is a, well, I'll let, I'll let the blurb describe what this is to everybody before I let Adam get on with the questions. So, a searching memoir of a life lived in the flicker of an action film by the author of I Will Take the Answer. Ander Munson has seen Predator, the 1987 film starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, 146 times. In his first memoir, Munson guides readers through a scene-by-scene exploration, turning his obsession into a lens through which he poignantly examines his own life. Between scenes, Munson delves deeper into his adolescence in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and I have no idea what... Ryder? Is that an area in America? Yeah, Riyadh's in Saudi Arabia. I spent a couple of years... Uh, Oh, yes, of course you do, yes. His role as a father and the loss of his own mother, and his friendships with men bound by the troubled camaraderie depicted in action and sci-fi blockbusters. Munson also offers questions and critiques of masculinity, fandom, and their interrelation with acts of mass violence. In a stirring reversal, one chapter exposes Munson through the Predator's heat-seeking vision, asking him, what do you know about the workings of the hidden world? As Munson brilliantly brings us into the depths of the film and its universe, the hunt begins. There's a lot there. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to offer it over to you, actually, just to give us a bit of a 
idiot's guide to perhaps what you got on offer with Predator, a memoir, a movie, and obsession. Sure. So this book kind of started in, um, I live in Arizona, and when my congresswoman, Gabrielle Giffords, was shot in the head in Safeway here, and there was a guy who also killed a whole bunch of other people in that mass shooting. And kind of in the after effect of that shooting, uh, the thing that I found, that I found myself doing was playing Fallout 3, you know, it's a first person shooter that takes place in America, kind of post-apocalyptic America, where I would just shoot people in the head with my sniper rifle, which is my preferred way of playing those games. And there was this moment that I was like, you know, listening to the newscast about whether Giffords was alive or dead. And I'm slow-mo headshotting this marauder. And I wondered, oh, that that's a weird, this is a weird juxtaposition. This is a, an odd thing to be doing for self-care to make myself feel better. That was a thing that like made me feel better in that moment. And I wonder like why was that? It took me a little while to figure this out. I started like watching all the action movies that basically parented me as a kid. You know, I watched all of them. I watched all the Jean-Claude Van Damme. I watched all the Sylvester Stallone. I watched all the Schwarzenegger. I watched all the movies in the 80s and really much of the 90s. Spending at times, it felt like more time with these movies than with like my dad. And I, I started to think, I'm like, okay, like what are these movies like, how did I get to the point where I enjoyed headshotting these guys as a way of feeling better about my congresswoman getting shot? And the more I thought about it, then I started to think about like, okay, which of these movies do I still watch? And which is the ones that like mean something to me? Like, you know, I mean, I love, you know, Commando. Commando is a fun movie to watch, but it doesn't have any real meaning to me. And the one that I thought about was Predator. That's the one that I've watched a lot. I watched it about 40 times as a kid. And when I started to rewatch it, I started to notice things in the movie that I hadn't picked up on as like a 12 year old when I watched it for the first time. And I'm like, OK, there's there's a lot here. I mean, it's, I've always loved it. It's my favorite movie. But it's a movie that like as an adult from 2020 or so, you can see a lot of stuff in it that I couldn't see when I was 12. And so I started watching it and rewatching it kind of obsessively. I got really into it. I read the novelization and that kind of like went down this like this rabbit hole where and the novelization is by Paul Manette, who was a gay memoirist and poet who I found out was writing Predator while his lover Raj was dying. I mean, writing it on his deathbed almost like while his lover was dying next to him. And he's working on this novelization of the movie. And I'm like, like, what did this poet, this gay man see in this movie? Like, obviously he was doing it for the money. I mean, that was part of like what he did. He worked in Hollywood, but he was also, he saw things in it that like when I read that novelization, it's a beautiful novelization. It's got some issues also. I mean, it, I think it characterizes people pretty badly from a, from a 2020 perspective or 2022 perspective. That is always my overriding memory of that book is that it just felt very problematic in terms of how it portrayed the diverse cast of the film. So that that was one of the things that I came out of your book being quite surprised about, to be frank. You know, I was like, I want to go reread Paul's book. But wait a minute, I, I remember him being kind of racist in this. Seeing your exploration of him was... And, and his circumstances and his the way he wrote that book was one of the very intriguing elements of this. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I do think it's, I think it's a good book, but you do have to hold your nose a little bit with some of the way that he is characterizing these guys who are much better in the movie. Because in the movie, it's like a human actor who can portray a lot more than the character like is on the page. But like, I think it's worth, it's 100% worth revisiting that that book in part just for some of the differences between uh, between it and the movie. 
maybe we can get into this a little bit later because it's kind of a little bit of a rabbit hole to go down. But the idea that the predator can transform, can shapeshift into any creature that doesn't have a soul, which is in the novelization, which is radically different than the way the predator shows up in the movie, where it's just a creature with like, you know, regular kinds of limitations. But the thing that reading that novelization opened up for me, there were two things. One is how he looks at men. Like the men are described beautifully in a way that they're aestheticized, in a way that the movie does too. And I wouldn't have figured this out at 12. But when I watch it now, I mean, like, I can't not look at Schwarzenegger. I mean, he's he's gorgeous to look at. All those guys, like, they're great to look at. And they're sort of, you know, the eyes drawn to them in a way that from, you know, from this far out is like really easy to read as like homoerotic, if not homosocial. But like, there's, I mean, all we're looking at is men for the most part. And I'm like, okay, so this gay poet, I read his novelization, that kind of gives me a key to one way of looking at Predator And it also unlocked for me the idea that as a poet, what did he see? There's so many beautiful descriptions of things in the novelization that I think it makes it worth visiting. And it kind of unlocked Predator as, to my mind, an art movie or a movie that sort of secretly has these like art effects, even if it's, you know, I mean, it is a sort of fun genre movie, but underneath it, it's doing all this cool stuff with these beautiful shots. And that's when I realized I was really onto something. Like I started to watch Predator again and see America through Predator, see masculinity through Predator, see gun violence through Predator, see myself through Predator. Didn't always look that good when I saw myself through Predator. And so that started to kind of fuel my obsession. And I kept rewatching it and seeing more in it and sort of going down these like research directions into the Palmanet archives and all this other stuff that we can get into a little bit later if you want to. But I mean, it was amazing to watch it open up a world for me that I didn't have access to until I started really just watching it and watching it. You'd read Paul's book before you started writing yours. Yes. How far down the rabbit hole were you with his personal life before you were writing it? You know, how much of that came as a result of, you know, your research? You know, I'd known him as a poet. I read uh, Love Alone, which is a really brutal, angry book. He wrote this book, these like raging elegies when his lover is dying. And at the time, you know, in the 1980s, the government did not acknowledge that AIDS was even a thing. No one even said the word, much less funded any research or did anything about the epidemic at the time. It took a very, a criminally long time for the American government to catch up with this thing. And it's a thing that I didn't, you know, I mean, I grew up in rural Michigan like a white, straight, cis, hat kid, like who didn't really have access to this. And I, you know, I knew what AIDS was. And, you know, I sort of had read more, certainly like as an adult, but I had no idea of really, I guess, like the moment to moment, like experience of living in this community while this terrible thing was happening to Paul and to, to a lot of his friends and his lover. And you sort of, it's only when I started reading his, you know, his nonfiction that I, that started to come out. So I didn't know. I knew some. I knew he was a beautiful poet who wrote brilliantly about rage and anger and despair, but I didn't know what the contours of that life was like until I started reading his nonfiction. And then when I started reading his journals, I went to his archives and I started to get a better sense of him. And he becomes like a pretty big character, I think, in my book as someone who is tragic, but also a kind of warrior. I mean, that's what he, I think he ends up being for me. He ends up being a kind of war hero, almost in the way of a Dutch or something like that. You touch on the AIDS epidemic a number of times in your book in a comparison of it with the plot of Predator. This is something that kind of reminded me of a film essay that I read back in 2010 by Michael Gurnow, who also made this comparison. I thought the essay was pretty interesting and thoughtful. Had you 
notice the AIDS symbolism connection yourself independently, or was this something you discovered during your research that people had written about? This is a thing that I, I think I've read that essay, but I read that pretty late when I was kind of Googling around because it seemed when you start to look at it, you know, I mean, there's these guys, only guys in a jungle being hunted by an invisible killer, disavowed by the government, betrayed by their friends. Like that sounds a lot like the plot of Predator and it sounds a lot like the AIDS epidemic also. And so like when I started to look at it, then I thought it, it became so obvious to me. I mean, I don't think the movie is about AIDS. You know, this is just a function of like when you watch something that was made at a time, it has all the culture kind of embedded in it. And you can start to see some of that culture if you go far enough away from it and look hard enough at it. But I didn't I hadn't read that essay. I did. I did eventually read it. And I found it like half really compelling and half like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I think he sort of makes a little too much of certain things, but it's a great essay and it's a really compelling reading. And once you start to look at it that way, to look at, you know, I mean, the sort of comparisons between it, then you're like, okay, you can't stop looking at it. I mean, it becomes like a permanent kind of like echo for me watching the movie. So that even then when you see like a scene like Billy hacking the vine in half pretty early on and like sucking on the vine and then like, you know, it takes away those like viscous fluid starts dripping down his face. Like, it's really hard not to read it that way. You're like, okay, did people know? I mean, is this like a sort of phallic moment in this movie? Like, what are we supposed to do with this? And it becomes almost, I mean, it becomes really hard to ignore. And then when I realized that, the, you know, the only song in the movie is Little Richard, this like coded drag anthem and Little Richard, not, you know, not the the straightest musician of all time and someone that, you know, operated in the straight world in various ways. But that's the only song like Long Tall Sally. And I'm like, maybe I should look at those lyrics. And I looked at those lyrics. I'm like, whoa, actually, those lyrics are Long Tall Sally seems to be a guy. He's long and tall and bald. That's probably not a woman in the alley. And you're like, holy crap, like that's there. It's a great song. It's just like, you know, it's a party song. It's like a really fun song in the movie. But then when you start to look at it, you're like, whoa, okay. That just like adds like this other level. And I'm sure that that's got to be mentioned in the sort of queer reading that essay that you mentioned. But like, I found that very powerful and like liberating that also, you know, I mean that you could watch this movie that is like this iconic hyper-masculine movie that basically I learned everything I needed to know about men from. And then it has this whole other level. And I was like, holy shit. Like, that's such a great feeling to know. I don't know. It's like you have access like a secret world all of a sudden, whether it's intentional. I don't know if McTiernan is aware of it or if anyone was sort of trying to nod to things. You never know. But like there's like a space within Predator that this exists in, at least for me as a reader. And I found this to be beautiful and just really compelling to explore. It's almost like Top Gun in that sense where, yeah, there are those moments and you're like, was this intentional? Because it's hard to imagine on some level it wasn't. Yeah. That's half the fun of reading these things and watching these things yourself is, you know, what you, what your background, what your perspective projects onto them and stuff like that as well. So it's, it's always interesting to see what these unique angles find in the reading of them. Yeah. I mean, that's why, like, when I sort of realized that, you know, I was watching this movie and trying to write about this movie that I needed it to be, I had to be honest about what I was doing, which is like, I'm bringing myself to the movie and you're sitting down with me. The plot of my book is we're just watching the movie together. I'm going to pause the movie on the like with my remote control and kind of riff on things for a while and going to go down these like research dives, like these like weird asides. But I need to be honest about who I am too. When anyone I think comes to a work of art, like you see something that you're looking for or something that only you can see and that illuminates your own life. And so when I did that, I'm like, okay, there's a reason why Predator also affected me as deeply as it did as a kid. You know, I kind of went through a pretty fucked up time in my life. Like my mom had died 
friend of mine's sister got killed by a serial killer. Another friend's mom had died. Another friend blew his hand off with bombs. We were making a bunch of bombs and doing our anarchist cookbook crap like in the woods. And like, there's a reason why I think that I, I gravitated to a movie like this that offered both like really awesome and beautiful. And I think like vaguely, I mean, deeper, deeper relationships between the characters than you see in most of those movies of the era, as well as this like spectacular other world through which we see, you know, we see through the eyes of the creature as it looks at humans. And we don't always like what we see about humans. And you end up like rooting for the predator. I think at least part of you must be rooting for the predator. Like when you watch the movie and I didn't as a kid, but I'm like, oh, I'm allowed to root for the predator. I'm allowed to do that. That's great. That That's interesting because there's a criticism that I never expected of Prey. And it's that people are disappointed that the predators keep losing. And folk were like, come on, can we have the predator win for once? And, you know, I, as much as I love the film and, and, you know, the readings and digging into the things and stuff like that, you know, I still never lose the fact that he's the bad guy. You know, I, I know he's the antagonist. So it was never something that was really on my radar, but, you know, you sort of explore it a little bit when you get into the cosplayers and how they put themselves into the characters and, and, and the, the backstory they create for themselves as, as this other creature. So, yeah, this view of rooting for the Predators, maybe subconsciously because humans suck so much. But yeah, that, that, that was something that cropped up recently that I just did not expect. Yeah, for sure. Like it's a thing that like you know I mean I I think it asks us, it invites us to root for it when it when we see ourselves through it. Like as you know, I was listening to your interview with Dan Trachtenberg, which is a great interview, and he made the point that I felt very clearly about when I watched Predator, which was I am not remotely close to these guys in terms of like their unreal physiques and their awesome confidence and their kick-ass weapons. Like, you know, I'm still human. So like they are kind of the avatar we play as them, I think, when we watch the movie. But we only really get to see through one creature's eyes. And that's the predator. You have that those POV shots, which are about five minutes of the movie. I made a kind of super cut of all of them. Like you spend five minutes of this movie just in the thing's head. Often, like, you know, we're doing what it's doing. We're trying to figure out, like, what's up with this? Like, why are these guys acting this way? Like, why are they, like, fighting in the jungle? You know, what does it mean when, you know, when, like, Mac is talking to Dylan you have like the scorpion scene and the men are saying things to each other that aren't what they clearly aren't what they mean. And you see it like trying to like understand it. And so we're doing that too. So I think it, it offers the invitation to us that I think a lot of people, when they come to the movie now, like if you, you know, when I came to it, you know, I, I root for Dutch, like I root for the guys, like I love all the guys and I love when they're killed. You know, I know one roots for the gorilla camp, like, cause like those aren't really characters for the most part, but like I showed it to my daughter who's nine for the first time, like a couple of weeks ago. And she was hundred percent team predator. Like her approach was very much like she, she said before we even watched the movie, she's like, I hope it kills them. Humans are overpopulating the earth. I hope it turns them into a blood fountain. And I'm like, whoa, okay. I don't know where that came from, but it basically does. And she was so disappointed when it got killed at the end. She was so unhappy like when it finally died. But I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's a Hollywood movie. Like it is the antagonist that has to die for us to feel, you know, compelled by it, even though it dies on its own terms. Like it, it's the one that sets up the self-destruct mechanism. So it doesn't totally lose in that sense. But yeah, I'm, I don't know if I'm like rooting for the predators exactly, but I think we are much more likely to feel close to them than we are to say like the xenomorphs in like the AVP movies, right? I mean, the predator is like close to the humans in those. They're much more humanized, uh, especially in sort of like the the expanded universe as well. When you start to dig into all the outer stuff and, and you put in more perspective and uh, cultural understanding and stuff like that into it. Yeah. So in, in that regard, yes, very much more the predator than the alien. And it's like, I think it's notable too that, you know, when people, 
No one dresses up, as far as I could tell, to like cosplay like Dutch or cosplay Mac or Dylan. There are some. Oh, there are some? Okay, that makes me happy. But like I've seen like all the people I found, like you just want to build your suit and create your character. And I think that's just like a an outpouring of the thing that the movie offers to us. You identify with it and you want to create this kind of knowable but kind of not knowable character who's compelling and, you know, weird and alien and awesome. So, I, I mean, I, I see why people do that. And your book frequently references your 146th Watch of Predator, which I'm curious how you kept track of all that, if you had like a Predator tally board or something. But we have a tradition on our podcast to ask our guests about the very first time they encountered the Predator. So does the first time you ever encountered our favorite extraterrestrial big game hunter stand out in your memory? It's a thing that I don't, I can't quite remember it. Like I want to believe that I watched it in the theater because I had a, my parents had a couple friends who I think would basically take us out sometimes. My brother and I, he's a couple years younger than me. And they would, they would take us out to like movies and whatever. And we, we got to see some stuff we shouldn't have been able to watch. Like I remember seeing like Revenge of the Nerds at a theater when I was, no way was I like more than like 10. And that's, you know, fairly inappropriate, like in terms of like the sort of sex and the dumb jokes and that. So I like to believe, I want to believe that I saw at the load theater, which was the theater in my hometown, the only theater, but I don't know, I don't remember it. And it's like a thing that I actually, it makes me sad that I can't remember it, which suggests that I'm probably watched it on video on VHS, like when one of my brothers or one of my friend's brothers had like rented it for us and be like, Hey guys, you need to like watch this. I feel like that it must've been that that's more likely than me being able to see it in the theater. But I remember, I remember watching it. I remember how exciting it was. Like it really is like a brilliant movie. I loved like when I watched it with my daughter, some, this brought some of it back too. Like there's this moment where, you know, like in even the, like, you know, the gorilla camp scene, which is not, it's the only like real action movie part of the action movie is like that whole sequence that like, you know, you get the guys flying through the air and she loved that. And like, that was just thrilling to watch. But the thing that I remember was those POV shots was all of a sudden in the movie, I'm like, what in the hell? Like, what is this? Like, I didn't know. I have no idea. And it took me, you know, whatever, I figured it out. I'm not like a total dummy. But like that feeling of, I'm like, this felt like something very similar to the stuff I was watching, which were all those action movies, but with a lot more to it. Like, I don't think Predator is even an action movie. I think it starts as a war movie and becomes an action movie and then becomes a horror movie and then ends up as a sci-fi movie. And that kind of like genre bursting thing is something that you see in a lot of McTiernan's work too. But that's like, that's the feeling that I had. I was like, I thought it was awesome. And I just like, you know, all the guns were awesome. All the guys were awesome. The creature was awesome. There was nothing about it I didn't love immediately. In a book like this that involves plenty of research can very much be a journey of discovery with that research helping to steer the overall narrative you're weaving. Did you come across any particular surprises or revelations while working on the book? Yeah, like a couple of the things, I still have questions about the movie that I don't have answers to. And actually maybe you guys know, or like some of the folks on the boards know the like a couple of these questions. But one of them was the provenance of the the knife, like the stick around sort of moment in the movie, which is like not one of the better one-liners really in the Schwarzenegger canon, but it's like a pretty good moment. And I had no idea that 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 moment is basically a technical solution to a technical problem. Well, where McTiernan gives an interview and he talks about how for some reason the producers had bought this guy, you know, Jack Crane, Jeff W. Crane, the guy who made these knives. 
and you buy these big dumb knives the studio's like you got to use the knife so they're like all right i guess we got to put the knife in the movie and then the solution was they hated the knife like you know jim and john are like how do we get rid of this knife and the solution was well he throws it you get a one-liner out of it and then he doesn't pick it up and you don't have to deal with the knife for the rest of the movie and that was just a great little moment for me of you know, I come to this as like an very much an amateur. Like I just watch the movie. I'm not a filmmaker. I am a writer, so I can kind of see things a little bit from that way. But like, it never would have occurred to me that there was like a technical solution to this problem that was not the screenwriters or not like McTiernan's. It was just the studio needs you to do certain things and you need to find a way to navigate that in the same way that it was even a shock to me not a shock, but like the moment, you know, where they're shooting the guns into the jungle, like after Blaine gets killed, like there's a long minute and and change, just like gunshot, which is like a really great shot. And like one that I, I think about a lot, but like that idea, I don't know, it was maybe, I couldn't tell you, I was probably in my twenties, but I'm like, the whole point of that shot is as McTiernan explains, if you listen to the director's commentary on like the anniversary editions, the whole point of that shot, and he was like explaining this post Columbine was that they don't hit anything. The point of that shot is to shoot and show all this grandeur, all the shock and fury, but they don't hit anything. And I was like, oh, I mean, I kind of understood that as like a, you know, a viewer. I know they don't hit anything. And technically they do like barely wing the predator, right? So they technically do hit something. But like the idea he was mean to, to undercut, I guess, the kind of like, yay, guns, America, American interventionist might that Hollywood is trying to sort of like put forward and advertise that advertises the minigun in a way I'd never seen the minigun advertised before. But it also means to subvert that. And I'm like, okay, so there can be different stuff happening in movies. One person is doing something, someone else has no idea that's happening. And that was just a really cool feeling. Like a discovery like that was amazing to me and really made me feel that like the time that I spent watching this movie and my understanding of it, like it was worthy. Like it was valuable. I was getting to things that actually were in the movie, at least that, you know, the director thought were in the movie or said he thought was in the movie later. And so I felt very validated by that. Well, that sort of leads on to one of one of my other questions as well, because it's one of the things I find especially interesting about Predator and the culture around it, you know, and it's these contradictions in the way that the film presents its text and its subtext and the way the audience either reads it or doesn't read into it you know it is something you dig into in the book looking at more i guess uh, notably stand out to us you know in, in the way that toxic youtuber comments and the way they interact with like some of the homoerotic elements of the film and then you have uh, folks such as myself you know who despite the film's very deliberate guns are useless kind of themes and messages especially in that scene in particular you know like you're talking about i still i still sit there and go god damn i love billy's master key stuff like that you know is how aware were you of those kind of levels of contradiction going into it? Or was that all just part of the journey of discovery? I definitely didn't understand that when I was 12. Like when I was 12, you know, I was just kind of amazed by all the kickassery of it. And like still when I watch it, like, you know, part of me is 12 when I watch that movie every time. And like, I love the explosions and I love like the action sequences and I love the dumb one-liners and I love the guns. I don't know if I already loved the guns and this just kind of gave me a different kind of permission to do that or what. But I think when I when I was in my 20s and I was still watching Predator, like I started watching it a little bit differently where you're like, OK, I'm picking up on a couple of different of these other levels. And the fact that I mean, it is contradictory, like it is advertising gun pornography, like that scene in particular, McTiernan describes it as. He's trying to subvert gun pornography, but it is 100% also gun pornography. It is both of those things at once. And I love that aspect of it, like that it's willing to do both of those. 
Well, it's, it's funny as well because when you think of like advertisement for weaponry and stuff like that, and, and even down to imitation stuff, you know, it, things like airsoft, the things we watch to amples up are just videos of people firing them. You know, in that particular moment, we don't get the perhaps enjoyment, excitement, satisfaction, whatever that we would if we were doing it for ourselves. We are purely watching it happen. So that that moment is. No different than than me sat here watching somebody demo an airsoft replica, and yeah, it's it's a very interesting. You know, there's that little comment that you hang uh, that you mentioned as well of McTiernan's little hang on comment at the end of it of at least I hope that's what I was doing. Yeah, but instead, it's yeah, it is by all not necessarily intense, but it is an advertisement. It is exactly as we see advertisements for things like that. I thought that was very um, interesting. You know, that little hang on. At least I hope. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I don't know. When we make a work of art, especially when you make a work of art collaboratively as films are made, which involves hundreds of people and hundreds of different agendas all kind of coming to bear on this thing that comes to the screen. You know, I mean, the more I listen to like podcasts like yours and interviews with the people that actually make the things and, you know, that the constraints you have to deal with, like that are technical and financial and, you know, ideological and all those things. I don't know who like who ends up like being able to take full credit for like what is or is not in the art that you made. I think writers know this, that like when you're writing a thing, like you are both manifesting something on the page that you are trying to do, you're trying to do certain things, but like your subconscious, which is doing a lot of the work is doing other things underneath. And your subconscious is filled with all this other stuff, like the predators of the world and the games you play and the music you listen to and the books you read, all that stuff is kind of swirling around. So it's really hard to know. And I don't know that it's important to know. I don't feel that it's important to know if like McTiernan like meant to do all of these things, but they're there. Like you can see them. I mean, if, if like, if he meant to make like a satire of action movies, we would have like the last action hero, which is like a fun movie, but like kind of unwatchable now, like where his like agenda is like just too obvious and too far away from the pleasure centers of most people. And so like, I, I love that feeling of like not quite knowing like that, that is essential to like the mystery of art for me. And this has it. I mean, it's almost coincidental in a way as well, because, you know, that that gorilla sequence is very much, it's like you pointed out earlier, you know, it is the action uh, film part of, of Predator. And it was done by the second unit yeah. by some guy who was, were involved with, uh, I think it was A-Team, was what they worked on. And McTiernan had no particular direction of the way that was handled. So, you know, you go from this very action, sort of over-exaggerated version of war and action to then this very sort of more tense and restricted and the futility of weaponry and going back to basics kind of approach to it. So it's almost one of those accidental kind of marries kind of things going off. Yeah, like if you listen to like the director's commentary, like the first thing he says, like, you know, the whole beginning sequence, right? With like the space. And he's like, I'm not sure I've ever seen this before. And when you listen to that, I'm like, this is the director telling me he's like almost never seen the beginning of the movie because it was kind of tacked on in a weird way. I'm when I was like listening to this, like he's not very fun to listen to in a certain way because he's very low energy, like when he talks about this stuff. But I mean, like, I'm like, okay, then he's talking some shit about Fox. 
and their unwillingness to like, let him shoot in some particular film that I don't really understand. So like, he comes in very reluctantly and like almost in opposition to the movie that he made that gave, I don't know, it gives me a permission to sort of understand things differently. And yeah, to know that he didn't even shoot that whole, that whole sequence. And you can see it like when you watch it now, like the camera work is very different. It is a very different character to the stuff that he's really interested in, which is when the guys are in the jungle being, you know, hunted by the creature. Like that feels like where his, he really cares about the movie in a different way. And that's also for me, like where the movie is the strongest too. Like that whole sequence with the characters that feel like really connected and like they actually care about each other is very rare in action movies or in any movies like really that I watched then. And that's what I think really elevates Predator from some of its ilk. Like these guys seem like they actually care about each other in a way that is deep and isn't just like, well, so-and-so is killed, move on. Like when Blaine dies... Mac is broken. You know, he gets like the little conversation with Dutch and then gets the soliloquy. And I'm like, there just aren't that many movies that like give men the ability to feel. Like I wouldn't have said this when I was 12, but like they, they allow for that kind of space to feel in the movie. And that's like a really great gift, like watching it now that I wouldn't have identified when I was younger. Yeah, it's it's something that's interesting that you explore a bit in terms of the relationship of Blaine and, and Mac and how he grieves over his friend. And yeah, it is very uncommon to see that in movies that are action films with a military group of characters. When they lose a friend, it's typically like a quick thing. You know, it doesn't really linger on the emotion surrounding them as much, especially movies during that time period. So but moving on to the topic of masculinity, it's a very prominent topic in, in your book, but you handle it in an interesting way. Toxic masculinity is a phrase that can elicit all sorts of reactions, depending on the persuasions of who you're talking to. But there's a passage in your book that I think illustrates well how you handle it here. And that is, quote, I'm not angry at masculinity exactly, but I do have questions for it. That's what a lot of this book seems to be, is questions about the world and yourself. Can you elaborate on this topic of masculinity and what it is that you're exploring with it? Yeah, this is and this is a tricky one. It's like, I don't even like the term toxic masculinity. I don't, I don't use it in the book. And I try not to use it like when I talk about it, because I think it, you know, like any term, it kind of diminishes the conversation you can have about things and limits and turns off like some ways that you can talk about it. But it, it's the, I mean, it's the question I started thinking about, like when I was, like when I was watching Predator and like playing Fallout and I'm like, what is this thing in me that like wants to blast the shit out of things? And loves violence, like a kind of controlled violence, which, you know, action movies are controlled violence. There's a reason why they're satisfying to watch, but probably terrible to experience in the real life. Like you don't want to be in the middle of a guerrilla camp getting blown up by these guys, but it's super fun to watch on, on a screen. And like, and like, what is it in that? And I started to think about like, why is it, you know, all these serial killers, they're all dudes. And then like, why are these other guys, like some of whom I probably know storming the Capitol on January 6th. And I'm like, I don't know, like they're like, they're, they're, there's something that's a little bit out of whack. I've seen just like some, I sort of watched like others' behavior and then occasionally I watch my own and I'm like, why am I like holding forth on this stupid thing that I don't know anything about? Like, I don't need to talk about this thing, but I'm like talking because I'm, I guess I'm trained to do it or like, I feel like I need to like fill some space somehow. And so that was the question that I was trying to figure out is like how to write about the sort of trouble I have I guess like with men, uh, with men like me, which is a way of saying with me, right? I mean, like I'm, 
implicating myself in this for sure. Like you have to. And like, what is the difference between, I, I don't know, storming the Capitol in Fallout 3, which is the one where we're in Washington, D.C. and you could literally go into the Capitol with a bunch of guns, with a minigun. You can get a minigun in that game and just blast the shit out of a bunch of stuff. And then actually like the people that storm the Capitol, like for, you know, on false pretenses and like shut the government down. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, is it that I don't have like an answer to the question, but the tool that I sort of was trying to use to think about it was the movie Predator, which is the thing that I hear men talk about all the time. And if I quote Predator to a guy, the guy's going to quote Predator back. Like it is a way that men my age talk about, I mean, what's that's how we talk to each other. You know, when you quote Schwarzenegger lines, I was on a disc golf course and these guys are just like screaming predator lines back and forth. So it becomes a way of like talking as men. So there's something that it taught us. And I'm trying to figure out like what that is. And partially like the thing that I came to. And, you know, I think I'm only partly successful in this book because like, I don't know how you talk. I don't know how you talk about masculinity. Like, I don't know how to do that. I know how to watch Predator. I know how to shoot guns and play games. I know how to like read books. But I can look at some of the things that Predator taught me about masculinity, some of which are positive and some of which maybe aren't as great because it's like, you know, movie in the 80s, like that's kind of what happens. And I could use that to kind of look at myself. And this is where I come to, I guess, in the end with the book is I get what I'm trying to do is argue for like a larger version of masculinity, like a version of masculinity that accepts the fact that Schwarzenegger is basically a final girl in Predator and like, you know, willing to accept like aspects of femininity. And willing to accept like the ways that there can be emotion between men in male friendships that doesn't have to be queer necessarily, but like has like a kind of depth to it and that men can sort of talk to each other and like be reflective about things, which is a kind of big masculinity. It's not the masculinity that means like if I have the biggest gun or the biggest muscles, like I'm the biggest man. It's the masculinity that we see in the movie that like, that's not the thing that saves Dutch and doesn't save humanity. It's his ability to see himself from outside himself, to see that the thing can't see him, and then to be, you know, to use some ingenuity to save the day, which is a human characteristic, not like a male one necessarily. And admittedly, I did join Boy Scouts to learn how to do the Boy Scout shit that Dutch does, like, you know, that saves the world or saves him anyway and is in the movie. So that's kind of where I got to is like this feeling of even masculinity is a kind of tool that we can use. It can be used to wound, can be used to wound ourselves. Or if we make it a little bit bigger, like if we're able to like look at ourselves from outside ourselves as the movie offers, like we literally see the guys in the movie through the Predator's POV. Like if we can do that, then maybe we can see a little bit of what we're doing and maybe behave, maybe I can behave a little bit better in a moment that I otherwise might not have. And I hope that like we can be instead of feeling threatened when someone else like points out like a thing that they see in the movie that we love and it takes up like a large part of our personality that we can be like, yeah, that's cool. Like, yeah, yeah, I could see that and not feel like it diminishes our own selves or our own experiences of the movie. So that's what I'm trying to do. I don't know if I get there necessarily like in the book, but I'm trying to look at me and us and see what the predator maybe can see and hopefully not kill us all. It was also interesting when you mentioned that I think you were with a female friend and she asked you a question about masculinity that kind of took you aback a little bit. And I won't spoil it, but it was interesting. It it kind of prompted you to have those sorts of questions that you're talking about here in terms of in terms of your exploration of the topic. Yeah, that was one. I was just like, I'm like, oh, I'm like, what is wrong? Like if these women in their 20s are just like, what's wrong with men? Why do we need men? 
And I'm, I'm like, oh, shit. Like, I mean, that's a question that people need to answer kind of for themselves. And like, what does it even mean? Yeah, what does it mean to be a man? You know, I, I feel like action movies taught me one thing. Books taught me another thing. Games taught me another thing. Like, I mean, the world teaches us many different things about what it is to be a man or to be a human and to try to like reconcile those and expand them rather than defend the sort of diminished version of them. And it's one of the hardest things to do as well, you know, is take a look at yourself, you know, that look in the mirror and question yourself. You know, people don't like to be wrong. And I think that's a problem we see a lot with the, the, like the people on YouTube, especially, is that kind of mentality. And I think it's one... Probably the hardest question for you to ever tackle in the book and, and the hardest question, you know, people are going to face, you know, when, when it's put upon them. Yeah, it is. And it's hard. I mean, I like to talk, obviously. Like, I mean, and I like to, you know, to be right and to like assert things and so forth. It feels good to do that. But yeah, it is. It's important to sometimes just kind of listen and watch and like listen and watch ourselves too. I don't know, 5% of the time maybe, or two. I'd settle for two. You know, we, we've been talking a lot about the elements and themes and things that you can read into in, you know, in, in the original Predator, you know, in the first one. And, you know, while you sometimes reference the other films in the book, you, you don't really dive into them. Do you think the other films don't have quite as much depth to to explore or, or to offer as much as the original does? I mean, mostly that's just a function of, you know, I mean, maybe I write Predator 2, another memoir. Like, I, I don't know. It was like Predator's big. So if you want to expand to like all the Predators and the AVPs, then that starts to get really unwieldy. I mean, I do think, you know, I mean, I think Predator is the best one and the one, but with by far the most depth and the one that I watched the most obsessively when I was young and certainly as an adult. Predator 2, I mean, Predator 2 shows up a few times because I really love, there's two moments that I really, well, there's three that I love in Predator 2. Like there's the one where like they're, you know, they all have the guns on the subway like, you know, one person pulls a gun, someone else pulls a gun, then they all have guns, which I thought was just a really great, like, gag, but also kind of commentary on, you know, whatever gun violence. There's the moment where the the kid is a toy Uzi and is in the cemetery and is, like, shows up and shoot, is shooting at the Predator. And I really found that notable. And the Predator, like, you know, assesses there's no threat and whatever, no harm, no foul. And to read that kind of in the context of, like, George Floyd and, like, police violence, I'm like, well, you know, I mean, again... There's this creature that has a code that like maybe we don't or an ability to assess things better than we do. And then there's the moment where the Danny Glover character is like at a taxidermy shop randomly in LA and is like looking in the window and sees himself among like the the trophies that are there. So I think there's a lot of great stuff in Predator 2. Plus, it makes like the, I mean, the whole global warming argument that I think is implicit in Predator more explicit. It's getting even hotter. The creature comes in the hottest years. And like, you know, the more we kill them, they're just going to bring more. I mean, so even killing a predator is not, doesn't do that much for humanity. We're just going to bring more. We've shown ourselves to be hardcore, I guess. So I underestimated Predator 2 as a movie. And I've only watched it, as I mentioned uh, a little before we started a recording. I've watched that maybe 10 times. And I actually like Predator 2 a lot more than I, I, I used to, you know, I was disappointed it wasn't Predator. And now actually I've come to appreciate it, especially the kind of nods to the xenomorph and to the other kind of historical things that, the, you know, the moment, the, the gun that gets picked up in Prey. But I don't know that the, like, I didn't love the, I, I, I liked AVP. It was, a, that was a more fun for me as a game. Like I loved Alien versus Predator on Atari Jaguar. Like that to me, it was a better version of like AVP as like a movie and I liked to AVP. I couldn't get through Requiem more than once. Liked Predators. 
Predator's like very much kind of like a flashback to the dirty spirit of Predator that I like. The Predator, I liked more than I think most of the fan community for sure liked The Predator. And that's a mess of a movie. And I love Prey. Oh, that Prey was like fantastic. and made a couple things like that I was like already pointing toward the kind of anti-colonial nature of it. And it kind of reframes the question of masculinity versus humanity. I'm like, yes, Dan Trachtenberg, like like you found the things, like some of the things that I like saw were implicit in Predator and they were just right there in Prey. And I love that aspect of it. Let's get into Prey a little bit. I mean, you wrote this book in 2021 and Prey came out the following year, this year. Overall, it's been really well received by critics and fans. So. How do you feel that that movie compares with the original, but also how does it stand on its own for you? I I thought it was fantastic. And I I was actually trying to pitch because I'm like, oh my God, this movie's coming out like a month before a book comes out. Like it's a perfect way to talk about some of the things that interest me. And in particular, like why are we still making Predator movies? I think a lot of people just like stop paying attention. And then all of a sudden Prey comes out and they're like, oh, okay. Because like it really did make the point is like this is a fantastic story and world and creature and this whole thing like it continues to resonate in ways in America and worldwide that are underestimated by most people. People still think of Predator as like this niche thing, but it's like it's everywhere. There's so much of it everywhere now. And you have two governors like right now, ex-governors. Like it started to like, you know, when I started to see anything in Predator, when I started to read America through Predator. But I thought the prey was I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was, it reframed the argument that I think Predator makes to make it more explicitly about humanity, not masculinity, that I thought was great. And also you guys talked about with Dan when he was on the podcast, that it also, the movie, it's probably for me, the second most beautiful of the movies. There's so many beautiful, arty shots in Prey. Like I I watched that about four or five times when it came out. And there's so many, I mean, I haven't quite gone frame by frame with that. A, it's not super you know, possible if I can't get like a physical copy. So please make a Blu-ray or something of that movie so I could you know, have a, a different experience with it. But I, yeah, I loved, it. I loved it. One of the things you did in this book as well was, was challenge me a little bit. So, you know, you, you frequently bring up the idea of how your reading of Predator changes as you've grown older. You know, after you've experienced these, in your case, some horrific and traumatic events, you know, that, that shape your world perspective. You know, and it, it reminded me of something I saw recently on social media, you know, and it was just this comment about encouraging people to go back and reread their favorites because of how perspective changes. <laughs> now, I find that funny because for the longest time, I did not dare want to go back and reread Frank Herbert's Dune because I just did not want to challenge my perspective of it. I always I always zone on that one in particular because I went, I was going through a shit time when I read it and I just loved it so much and I just did not want to challenge how I perceived it. So how important do you think it is to revisit these films, these books, these these media, you know, as your worldview changes? I think it's really important. I mean, I just went back for the first time to read the the books that I read maybe the most as a teenager were like the Dragonlance books, this like fantasy series that I loved. I was so into the Dragonlance Chronicles and I read them all the time as a teenager and I just revisited them like about a month ago for the first time. Cause I'm like, oh, maybe I should get those for my daughter. I'm like, maybe I should read these first. Cause like, I, I don't know. I mean, there was a long time that, you know, I went to like grad school, became a writer. I was around a lot of intellectuals. And like, we didn't talk about Predator. We didn't talk about Dragonlance. You didn't talk about, 
like the stuff you really love. You talked about like Lacan or like Roland Barthes, like people kind of flexing on each other about like their intellectual capacities and how learned that they were. And but at the same time, like these are the things that like made me want to be a writer and made me want to be like an adult. Like I love them and they sort of expanded my world and my mind. And there's something really powerful about revisiting the thing that you loved when you were like 14. I'd say 14 is like a good age. And for me, the thing that like, I hope that the book gives people a permission to do that is to go back to those. Because if you look at what the thing is that you fell in love with and or that hurt you and or that bewitched you, maybe all three of those things, you reveal something about like you start to like, you know, when you look at it hard and long for me, it took 10 years and 146 viewings of the movie, but like it starts to reveal the thing itself. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about in the movie is in the movie and is in the book. It's in the sort of world of it. And so I start to illuminate parts about the movie that like I would have never understood if I hadn't watched it and read about it and like listened to the commentary and read the novelization and like read the wikis and read AVP Galaxy and people talking about it. Like all that stuff starts to like both like inform my experience of it and reveals it in a cool way, but also like reveals, like it allows the self to reveal itself. Like the version of me that's on the page here doesn't exist except as like revealed by Predator. Like it's a persona, like, you know, there's some of this, like it still feels like very autobiographical. I mean, it's an autobiographical book, but I would have never had some of the thoughts or had some of the feelings or got to some of the places been the person that I am on the page if I hadn't spent the time to go back to the the original thing, the thing that I loved and like look at it as hard as I could and see what was there. And I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it was Predator and not something that like maybe didn't have as much depth or complexity or longevity. Like it had a lot to it, which is great. But I think it's very, very, very valuable to do. And to know that like, you know, I mean, even, even like rereading, you can reread them in that novelization and be like, yeah, it's kind of racist in these ways, but that doesn't mean it doesn't diminish the things that are great about it. Like, I mean, it makes it like complicated. That's a failure of the writer. But he also, like, man, he like crushed some aspects of that book. Like some of the prose there is like fantastic and beautiful. And like no one has written better that I've read about certain aspects of Predator than show up there. So if you go back to it and, you know, if you go back to Dune... And now is a good time to do that, I suppose, since the, the new movie came out. But I think there's a lot to reveal about both the thing and yourself when you do that. It's valuable, even if it can feel hard. Like I was like, I was stressed out about the Dragonlance. I'm like, oh man, are these going to suck? They might not be good. And for the most part, they're pretty good books. Like there's a couple of things that I'm like, yeah, okay. Maybe the female characters are not as well rendered as I would have, as I thought they were when I was like 14. But for the most part, like pretty impressive, very enjoyable. And you get to like feel yourself reading it when you were young and reading it when you're your age that you are now. So you get like this cool doubling and all the space between you're all of those selves. And that's awesome. Like, I, I think that's such a gift to be able to do. And I have you done it? Did you go back to Dune or are you still thinking about it? I did start to reread it, but then I don't know why I stopped. I stopped at some point after the assassin attempt and I, I haven't jumped back into it yet, but I did go buy myself a very nice fancy copy of the trilogy to um, jump back into when I'm ready. But yeah, it's it's a weird thing. But like with, with this, I want to go revisit Manette's book. I really do because of the, the passages that you highlighted in this. I really want to go and shine more of a light on that because my overwhelming bring out of this was, God damn, that was some racist stuff in there sometimes. So yes, I, I very much see where you're coming from there. 
Yeah, it was an interesting prompting to look back at the things that affect you around the age of 14. Because yeah, it's that time right in the middle of your teen years, really, that things really do impact you. You know, that's when Aaron and I were really getting into Alien and Predator. And it, it impacted us enough that we still do what we do with the site. And but there have been a number of times where we've revisited older things that initially drew us to these franchises. And they are different. But at the same time, as you said, we can kind of return to how we felt about them in the first place at the same time. And it's a really interesting feeling. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things I actually quite like about revisiting Alien, just to pivot a little bit away. You know, the, the more experience I have with the corporate world and, and uh, <laughs> the, the idiocy that I have to deal with, you know, it makes me empathize a lot more with like characters like Captain Dallas and, and Corporal Hicks and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's my moniker online, but it was because I fucking loved Hicks. He was a cool Marine when I was a kid. But now I'm like, yeah, he's a dude who's had the weight of the world thrown on his shoulder there. You know, a bit, little bit of an exaggeration, but to go from like a, a, a monkey to being in charge of things and stuff like that so yeah it, I, I think it, it, it's funny with me because it's like on the one hand there's this one thing that i really don't want to revisit but then there's other things that i love revisiting because of how perspective shifts there so i just thought it was an interesting question and i, I very much enjoyed how you you know handled the events changing your perspective and stuff like that you know how you became then more aware of the violence or the the gun crime and the gun representation in in the film and stuff like that yeah, I think, I mean, it's everyone has their their own journey with Predator. I hope they have their own journey with Predator or something similar. And everyone's experience is different. That's why it's been so cool to do these. I've been doing these screenings at independent cinemas, which are complicated by the fact that Disney has like weird rules about where and when you can screen Predator. We couldn't even screen it within three months of Prey coming out, which was really frustrating because they have a rule that they will not let, they will not put anything back in theaters that is in a franchise that has a new version, even though Prey was not even released in cinemas. So it's, you know, we're doing these screenings, some of which are like people that have never seen Predator or have never seen it on the big screen or have seen it, you know, maybe like a hundred times. I've talked to, there's like a number of people that have seen it maybe more than I have. I don't know what your number is with this movie. Long ago, lost track. Yeah. But then to talk to them and listen to like what they see and like what Predator is for them is like we have a conversation afterwards and a lot of people just want to share like how much they love the movie and what they see in it and kind of what it was for them. And that's really been powerful. And a thing that I really missed about watching movies, you know, in the pandemic is it's very different to watch it in a theater with people that love the thing than it is to watch it, you know, on a screen by yourself. And that's what I, that's been the best thing for me about this journey and the book is getting to talk to other predator people, you know, young or old people that are maybe new to predator and to kind of like have to have a conversation about it like this, like that is so cool. And something that I never imagined I'd be able to do, you know, even five years ago. And it was also cool as a fan to see you're touching upon the the wider aspect of the franchise. Like you said, you had talked to some of the cosplayers, some of which I recognize that I follow on social media. So I was like, oh, you got in touch with them or you brought up something like South China Sea, which is a very highly respected Predator book. And and the fact that, that you bring up these experiences that you have that like the golf course, the disc golf course and the coffee shop where there is this cultural kind of connection to Predator. And that's why it's had this kind of staying power as a franchise, not to say like everybody loves it, but it's had enough of a, an impact on enough of a amount of people that it's something that just continues to, to go on. And it is a point of 
connection. Like it's a big part of why Aaron and I are friends is, is just that connection and, and how that happens. So. Yeah. That's one of the things that I, I also love about it. It's like what we talk about when we talk about predators, we're talking about friendship. We're talking about family. We're talking about culture. We're talking about correspondence and imagination. I mean, it's, it's all there. And it's like a thing that brings people together, even in the movie. Like, I think it brings, you know, brings the team together all of a sudden, right? Like Anna is one of the team. We sort of realize about halfway in. And so like that ability to bring everyone together just for a moment, this is the, it's hunting all of us. It's not just hunting like us. It's hunting like you too. That's really, that it's powerful. And that's a thing that I've come to appreciate about the fandom and about the world of people that love Predator. They're always happy to talk about Predator. And I've not exhausted my own happiness to talk about Predator by some ways. So I'm happy they're still making good movies. I don't know if they've made, I haven't listened to all the, all the podcasts, but I, I don't know if I've never played like a really satisfying Predator game. Like Alien Isolation was a very satisfying experience for me as a gamer. Are there good games? Like I played AVP on Jaguar. That was awesome. And since then, kind of diminishing returns, but I haven't tried a lot of them. I also really liked how you got into gaming in your book, because I'm also a big first person shooter player. So some of some of your explorations of that were really cool. But as far as Predator games go, there's a recent one that came out right after the pandemic started in 2020 called Predator Hunting Grounds. And that one is an asymmetric multiplayer game where it's a first person shooter on the human side of things. But as the Predator, you're in third person and you're hunting the group and it's still active. There's still people playing it. It feels like it's kind of winding down in terms of its life cycle, but I definitely recommend it. If you're into Predator, I thought it was a lot of fun. And then much older was Predator Concrete Jungle, which is a single player, more story driven game where you play as the Predator. And that I also it's it's hard to find a way to play it these days because I don't think it's backwards compatible. I think it was on 360. It was on 360. Yeah. So that one's a little tricky, but both of those I, I really enjoyed and I definitely recommend. But no, nothing to the quality and the comparison of what isolation is to Alien. You know, Concrete Jungle was very pared down to what it was originally intended to be. And Hunting Grounds, while it's fun, is not a AAA game and, and it is winding down. So unfortunately, no, we don't have an equivalent to isolation in, in the Predator universe. The best you are probably going to find is the various first-person AVPs, whether it's Rebel, any of Rebellions 3 or Monolith's second one. So those are your best place for Predator, the AVPs. That's good. It's a little weird. Like I remember when I played Isolation, and I was like, holy shit. I mean, this was the best alien movie in a long time. And to be able to play it was a really incredible experience. I feel like we're overdue to get a really good Predator game. Let's try know. Hunting Ground, because that sounds like it, it might be a solid play. That is very much a one that you want to play with your squad of mates. Got it. To get the most out of it. It is a squad-based game. So in that regard, you know, it's very Predator, you know, uh, men getting together and, and bonding over shooting things in the trees. That's what it's about. But that's actually everything from us, Andrew, before we let you get to the choppa. <laughs> are there, uh, Aaron wrote that one. Uh, are there any thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't given you the opportunity to with any of our questions? No, I mean, it's really been a pleasure to be on here. And I, I want to thank you both and everyone that works on AVP Galaxy, like for making that space and tending it. It's a lot of work to have done that. And I think it's important. It was helpful, certainly to my research when I was working on the book. And it's just been really cool to be able to kind of just jump in to this world of people that love these, you know, this collective world with aliens and xenomorphs and the predators and all of that. And, you know, I'm a big fan of people that make communities and help build communities. And so thanks to you two for that. It's really great work. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. You know, your book has been released 
fully now. Yes. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Is there any social media where if people want to see more of your stuff, they can follow you at that you want to shout out? Yeah, you can find me on Possibly Dying Twitter and Instagram as Anger Monsoon, which is the Microsoft Word autocorrect of my actual name, which is also my wrestling handle. You could find me there if you want to talk more Predator. I'm really happy to hear from folks about, about the movie, book, anything anything you want to talk Predator, I'm there for. And where can folk find the book? Is Is, is it on Amazon? Amazon, independent booksellers, whatever you want. I don't think there's a UK one right now, but there may be. It wouldn't surprise me if we can get a little bit of movement over there. I'm also doing a series of screening at ind- screenings at independent theaters. So I may be coming through your town at some point, in which case, come on out and you know come watch the movie with me. Yeah, if you happen to stop in Salt Lake City, just let me know. Be happy to. I've never seen Predator on the big screen, so I would love to. Yeah, Salt Lake City is close for me, so that's a good call. Um, and you've been posting the screenings on your Twitter, haven't you? Yeah. That's probably the best place to find yeah. out where you're going to be doing those. Adam, do you want to haul us out? Sure. If you'd like to find us on our website, it's just avpgalaxy.net, and we're on all the major socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If you just search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you're sure to find us. If you'd like to follow me personally, it's just at RidgeTop21 on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to follow me, I'm on just Twitter um, at underscore Corporal Hicks. All right, well, thank you, everybody, for watching or listening. This has been Aaron. Adam. And this has been Ander. Get to the chopper!